Now this week, uh, from the rest of chapter 2, we will be considering life in Christ. Namely, we're going to be reflecting on what we learn about what life in Christ means for us. What life in Christ means for us. And if you've got your Bible open, you've turned there, let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing and His help and His favor as we look to uh, hear from the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. In them uh, truly are your words to us. They're your precepts and your promises. It's your gospel light. All about the Lord Jesus. And so as we open them together and as I seek to teach and to explain them, may we learn more of Christ. As we open these scriptures together, enable us to retain the truth in these scriptures. Give us the grace to believe it, to love it, and to follow it. Help us, God. We lift our souls to you now during this time. And we ask that Christ would come in and show himself in these scriptures. They're deep, they're high, they're wide, they're too much for us without your help. So help us to explore your truths, to receive the word of Christ, and by the work of your spirit, that we would love them with all of our hearts, that we would embrace them with all of our power, and we would engraft them into our lives. Do this for your glory and for your honor. And do this for the sake of Christ and for our enjoyment. As we have freedom, we have life in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are free to love God and glorify Him in everything that we do. We have freedom from an impulsive, self-gratifying life to consider our neighbor's needs more important than our own. We have freedom to seek to conform our lives continually to the Word of God. We have freedom to change our rhythms in life so that we aren't so busy, that we can slow down and we can be available to meet each other's needs. This, friends, is not legalism. This is freedom in Christ. Legalism is adding to what Christ has done and trusting in that as part of your righteousness before God. What I just described is freedom in Christ. And so today, we begin to learn more about this heresy that's coming against this sweet church uh, of, of, of the Colossian church. You know, Paul's excited. He's rejoicing over this church they, for their love for each other and their faith in the Lord Jesus. He's, he's glad that they have good order and, and he's praising the Lord for their steadfastness in the faith. But this heresy is encroaching upon this church. And so he's writing. He's jealous for them. Remember we talked about last week. He's struggling for them to see them continue in this good work that, that, that they've started and, and by God's grace will finish. But this heresy is encroaching in. And in our text today, uh, we really start to learn more about what this is. And the first thing we encounter today is legalism. 
but it's, it's not just legalism that's a part of this heresy. We can sum up everything else that exists in this false teaching by the word syncretism. It's taken the world's philosophy. It's taken the world's uh, mysticism and ideas and ideologies and it's just engrafting them in and we're going to create our own spirituality. We'll take some Christianity, some Judaism and things in the world and let's shove it together and see what we get. That's the world's wisdom. And so this syncretism is, is kind of essentially the summary of this, this false teaching. But to kind of break it apart, we do have legalism, right? Going back to the Mosaic law and say we've got to circumcise, we've got to keep some of these ceremonial laws in order to be counted righteous. There's mysticism, which I will summarize for us as going outside of the scriptures uh, to are going outside of Christ to have mediation with God. So we're going to get to God through some other way than what his scriptures revealed in some mystical way. There's also Gnosticism, this early form of Gnosticism, needing to have this, this esoteric experience so that we might have this higher knowledge and that we could grow and mature. And then there's, um, labeled by name, a voluntary humility or asceticism. And this is just, in just extreme abstinence from very physical things as if that is a way that not only do we earn God's favor, but we show our godliness in one sense. We show our spirituality by de depriving ourselves in extreme forms. And then we trust in that. At the end of the day, the world's, the world's theology is, is to do something. We have the ability to do something for God. Uh, and so really shove all this together, it's self-made religion. It's, it's false teachers taking a little bit of everything and creating their, their own thing here. But in the world, when we create religion, here's the thing, at, at the bottom line, it's often self-justifying, but it's self-serving. It's self-justifying, we're going to seek to justify ourselves, but at the end of the day, it makes us feel really good. That's really at the core of it. And so what we have is, even if you want to put Christianity in the mix, and let's create our own religion, what we have is Christ plus, you fill in the blank. And Christ plus absolutely anything is not the gospel. Christ is not preeminent in Christ plus fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. The book of Colossians is all about how Christ is preeminent. He is all. He is sufficient. And in Him, you have life. He is the gospel. What He did for us is the gospel. And so again, so we now move to read our text. Paul, in this letter, is giving a clear vision of the person and the work of Christ as he struggles and is jealous for this church to not be taken away by false teaching. And week after week after week, your pastors labor to give you a clear vision of the person and the work of Christ. That you would not be, would not engraft the ways of the world into this religion and try to justify yourself or lose what it really means to have freedom in the Lord Jesus. So, we look now to read God's holy, perfect word. From the letter of Colossians. Chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink 
or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Give God praise for his word today and every day. And so our time today, I want part one to just look at the text. Let's go through the text. And then part two, let's reflect on what we've learned. So let's dive right in. Part one, looking at the text. Verse 16, the first word we see is therefore. And of course, we want to know what that therefore is there for. So what came before? Well, everything that we talked about last week. That we were dead in our sins. Dead in our trespasses. And the only reason that we are alive is because of regeneration. The Holy Spirit has brought us from death to life. And by faith, we've been united to Christ. All of our sins dealt with because he nailed them to the cross. Well, how did he nail our sins to the cross? Well, he who knew no sin was made sin. And Jesus was hung on a cross for us. Forgiven. Forgiven. And now the Lord Jesus ascends in that body he resurrected with. Sitting above all rule and authority. The Lord Jesus is king. Therefore, do not let anyone pass judgment on you. Verse 16. Don't let anyone burden your conscience. Don't let anyone say that, well, I don't think that you're in the faith. Based upon what? Based upon the Mosaic law. He labels several things here. Question of food and drink and festivals and new moon Sabbaths. I mean, these are all referring to ceremonial laws that were given under the old covenant. Now, I want to make one thing before we move on. The word here, Sabbath, is not the Lord's day. Fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. This is Old Testament Sabbaths that would end up in weeks and festivals. The fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy, still applies today. That's why we're here on the Lord's day, receiving from God's hand the word of Christ. We are, in fact, keeping the Lord's day holy. So, what we learn about those things. Why in the world shouldn't we do those things? Well, verse 17, he tells us, because they were always a shadow. They were never the thing that ever produced righteousness in Israel. They all pointed to what? Christ. Christ Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the substance of all of those things. If you remember being in, um, or if, you're, if you've been a part of Theology Nights, we went through the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. And we remember about the ceremonial law that they were all typological they had a function and a purpose for Israel under the old covenant, but they always, they always pointed to something greater and to something other. They served a purpose as God was using these things to reveal redemption over time. They were using it, but now those things, what they pointed to, has come. Christ. 
So they were always a type, and they shadowed something better. Because Jesus was always the point, standing in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, shadowing backwards, these things were shadowing what Christ would do. And so now that the substance has come, we don't need shadows anymore. We don't have to look back to the shadow. We got him. We have him. The types are no longer needed because the antitype has showed up. So the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the Passovers, the feasts, the days, the days of atonement, etc. All these things, they're all fulfilled. And since they are fulfilled in Christ, they're abrogated. They're not needed. We no longer need those things. Christ is here. And so this is the legalism part, that we're going we're gonna to continue to keep these old laws in order for God to kind of count our, our righteousness based upon Christ, but also us doing these things. That's legalism. But here's the thing, if, if we're going to think that way, we're under a curse. Romans 2, Galatians 3, all who rely on works of the law are cursed. Because here's the thing, if you are going to seek righteousness through the law, you better not be a sinner. I'm, you, I mean, you, you, at evil heart, you better not have an evil thought, a desire, inkling of a possibility of doing something sinful. Never. Not only that, but you just must be absolutely perfect. That's the way the law is going to prove you to be righteousness. The law can't make you righteousness. It can only tell you, hey, you are or you are not. The Bible says we're all born into iniquity. So we probably shouldn't look to the law for our righteousness. So, therefore, we don't. We look to Christ, who is the substance of the law, who fulfilled it all for us. Moving on to verse 18. So, again, because we're alive in Christ, because all of our sins are forgiven, because we have life in Him, let no one pass judgment telling you to go back to the old things. And also, let no one disqualify you. Disqualify you how? By insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, and then going into detail about visions puffed up with a sensuous mind. So, Let's look at this first word, asceticism. Now this asceticism is, like we said, depriving oneself of physical things like food and drink and materials as a sign of holiness, as a sign of, of showing uh, not only other people how humble you are, but it's just a sign of saying, hey God, this is how much I am going to do for you. This is how much uh, you should love me because I've done all of this. So uh, this, this, this means I'm very spiritual. Right? We're looking, again, to things that we're doing. Uh, and so this could possibly be the deadliest form of legalism, to be honest, that creeps into our mind. Uh, it maybe even creeps into our churches because it looks very sacrificial and it looks very, very humble. But it's showy. It's very pretentious. It's flamboyant. He goes on to describe in verse 23, and he's talking about asceticism. And, and other things, but they have the appearance of wisdom, uh, but it promotes self-made religion. And so we, in one sense, are going outside of what God has told us to do, and we're going to do these extra things that kind of make us feel good. Maybe we, we don't eat at certain places, or, or we take care of our bodies, and that's because, you know, I'm taking care of my temple, and, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm earning the little things from God. We're, we're abstaining from these certain things. We're, 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 we're not doing this kind of stuff, and it can puff us up because Naturally, we tend to trust in those things. Legalism is our bend. So maybe it's not 
going back to something that we should do like the Old Testament law. There's all kinds of things that we abstain from that we will tend to trust in our abstinence from as if God is looking at us saying, man, he's righteous. It's very self-indulgent humility. The word really is voluntary humility. The word he uses there is actually the, the same word that he uses in chapter 3, verse 12, to say that we should put it on. We should put on humility. Let's not get it wrong. We should be humble. We should abstain from sin. We should fight evil desires. But what we're talking about here is not doing things to try to earn God's favor. That's what we're talking about here. And we can deceive ourselves into thinking that our abstinence from things is earning something. The other thing is, and we'll talk more about this as we go through the text and as we reflect a little later so that I can clear up any questions you might have even just considering those things. The second thing though is the worship of angels. This isn't just like uh, idolatry. This is seeking a mediation between them and God through, through angels of whatever kind. Good, bad, I mean, it, it's just, there's, there's, not, there's not a lot, we're not really a lot, we're not told a lot about this worship of angels. But through other church fathers and how they write and how this Colossian heresy kind of developed, there, there's a clear lineage of seeking mediation through someone other than Christ, through some other being. And this is that mysticism. Uh, the next thing is visions puffed up. So these are... This word, this, this sensuous mind is like someone saying, God gave me a vision last night. And I described to you this grandiose, wonderful, beautiful, like, oh my gosh, I have never had visions like that. I mean, this is what these people would be telling the Colossians. The sensuous mind is that it's rich. It's gratifying. It's kind of like, whoa. It's enticing. Like, I want to have those experiences. And what they're saying is you need to have these experiences if you want to grow. If you want to reach a higher maturity, like I have. So imagine I'm, I'm not eating certain foods. I'm not doing these things. It has this appearance of wisdom. I'm seeking mediation through these other spiritual forces, if you will. And I'm having these grandiose dreams. It's like, man, Jesus died for me. Like, I, I, like, is this enough? Is this enough? You see the temptation there? And so Epaphras is going to Paul like, brother, I, I, the, the, these is, this is a sweet group of people. Their, their faith is in the Lord Jesus. They're loving one another. But these false teachers are coming in and they're pouring all of this on them. And so Paul's struggling with them. He said, yeah, I know they do all this. But he says, don't be, don't let them disqualify you. By insisting on those things, although, although very uh, enticing, don't let them disqualify you. Quick question, can we be disqualified by the faith if we're in the faith? Absolutely not. Why? Well, let's, let's just say two things. Going back to number one, I mean chapter one, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. We haven't qualified ourselves. How about Galatians 3, right? If, if we uh, began by the Spirit, do we finish by the law or by our works? Well, absolutely not. If you remember back um, when we were in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 22, or verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. And we, we talked about how it's like, ah, oh, if we continue in the faith. We all just, it's just law. All, we all felt shame and guilt. Like, what if we don't? Well, the thing is, is, 
We didn't, begin, we didn't create the faith that we began with. So we're going to continue in the faith by faith. But by how? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You've been convinced that hope is only found in one place. Don't leave it. I'd say if you leave it, then you've left hope. Let's just leave it at that. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. And we rely on the comfort that no one can pluck us from his hand. We rely on the comfort that he has qualified us to share in the inheritance. That he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Don't leave the hope of the gospel. Where are you going to go? Eat my blood, drink my body. And and everybody leaves. He looks at them. Are y'all going to leave? Peter said, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You're the only one with eternal life. You are eternal life. We're not going anywhere. Christ is ours forevermore. Amen. So, we're moving on. He says, don't let anyone judge you by telling you to keep the Old Testament law. Don't let people just discourage you and disqualify you and shake you up by assisting on all this other self-made syncretistic religion. They've taken everything, compiled it, and it's all compelling. Don't go there. Because verse 19, don't go there by holding fast to the head. You will go there if you leave Christ. If you don't hold fast to the head, what are you holding to? What are you hoping in? Some other religion or yourself, which is what we just described. So instead of doing those things, it's hold fast to the head. From whom the whole body, the whole body of Christ is nourished and it's knit together through its joints and its ligaments and it grows with the growth that is from God. Without the the head, the body can do nothing. In our physical bodies, there's no life apart from the human body being attached to a head with a brain. All the regular processes and, and all the systems that are going on in the body, it begins with the head and the brain is just regulating it all. It's kind of the control center of it all. But by adding to faith in Christ, you might sprinkle a little bit of Christ in there, but you add that other stuff that we just talked about. By adding to that, you're actually cutting yourself from the head. You're actually cutting the head off if you add to Christ. What's like, well, no, we got the head in, and I guess you got another head. No, that's not how it works. We have one head. We have one head is kind of the analogy here. It's only Christ Jesus. He is the only head whom which we hold fast to, and then God gives us a growth as we are together connected to the head. And so these false teachers say, listen, you can do things to earn righteousness with God. Like true spirituality, it looks like this. Look at how humble we are. Look at how look at these visions that we're having. Look at this. And and what do we say? Well we say what the word of God says. Look, you might think all of that that the world comes up with will give you some growth. The word of God says growth comes only through him. Through holding fast to Christ. And it says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, we considered last week, as you received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. Well, how did we receive Him? Well, we received Him as the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, descended from David, we heard about last week, born of the Virgin Mary, come to us in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. False teachers say, well, there's no growth in that. God becoming flesh, yada, yada, yada. 
But he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He fulfilled all righteousness, beaten, bruised, spit on. The king of glory, his hair plucked out, ridiculed, mocked, and judged a blasphemer by his own. A bloody Christ hung on a cross for you and for me. Our only hope died for our sins, rose victorious, sits enthroned even right now. False teachers say, there's no growth in that. That's the only place that there's growth. That's the only place that growth can be found. Death, eternal spiritual death, and then we've been brought to life, justification, Growth in him and from him. We're being made more like him. And then finally, we're going to resurrect with glorified bodies. We are going to change and be imperishable and, and, and walk with him forever. I would say there's some growth in that. That's a lot of growth. Sin completely destroyed, never to exist, and we're going to be together with, with the king, the creator of the universe. I say there's growth in that. It sounds like growth to me that any of us would be in here saying Christ is our hope. We didn't make that up. Growth in the faith comes from God. Through Christ, by the Spirit, based in the local church, under the ordinary means of grace. We're going to reflect on this later. But moving on to our text today, how does he remind them to hold fast to Christ and not to be judged by these people or let these people disqualify them? Well, hold fast to the head. Remember, growth only comes from him. And, and remember, you have died with Christ. Remember, you have died. You have died with Christ. Let's come back to that. Now, he says, what have you died to? Well, you've died in Christ to the world. To anything, to everything. Because at one time you were dead in spirit and alive to the world. But the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, has made us dead to the world and alive in Christ. So the world comes up with all this stuff. We don't eat, don't do this, we do this. The world has its own morality. The world has its own religion. You don't have the Lord Jesus, you will be in the world and the world will control you. We walk through the, the principalities of the air. We're born into iniquity, Ephesians 2. And what we, were, we, were, we were sons of disobedience, following our Father. It's like, not me. I was, I was, you know, yeah, you were. You were. That's us. And what he says is the world comes up with this law, the ABCs of, of kind of religion according to the world. And so they, these, these false teachers have made this thing up. They don't, don't touch, don't handle, don't. Actually, it goes this way. Don't handle it. Don't even taste it. Don't even go near it. Right? And that's, that's kind of the religion of the world. And then, and then we're going to deprave our body. Right? We're going to have all these visions. And it's self-made religion. It's, but it's what? The last verse of 23. It's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So there, verse 22... It's like, well, if we don't eat these things, these things are bad. Why? I don't know why, but the world has come up that says that these things are not the good things. And so we're not going to do them. So we're not going to eat cake. Okay, well, the Lord Jesus says that, you know, you don't eat cake, you eat it, and it perishes anyway. Sin is actually what comes out of your mouth because that reveals your heart. Jealousy, envy, covetousness, which is all idolatry. 
which is all idolatry because we worship self. So it might have the appearance of wisdom, but you've created these man-made laws that look like you're not a sinner, you know, or that you don't break the, the rules. But no moral law and, and no moral law, I mean, no moral law and no man-made laws have the ability to scrape away our sinful desires. It has zero power to scrape it away. I mean, the Pharisees made, made all these rules, and then Jesus shows up on the scene. They made rules so they wouldn't break what the Lord had gave them. And really, what did they do? Well, they created so many loopholes where they could say that they didn't break the law while still being able to do whatever their hearts desired. I mean, they, they, they worked the system. Welcome to being a human. You give us some laws, we're going to work it so that we can do what we want to do, but justify it and say we didn't do the wrong thing. This is us. This is us. Do whatever you want here. Make up, they, I mean, this is the world's religion, self-made, and they've, they've got it figured out. This stops the indulgence of the flesh, and they're just as guilty and damned as all of us. But it looks like wisdom. And I sit here and preach a crucified Savior. You know why? Because there's only, thing, only one thing that will, that will scrape away a heart that loves sin. The Lord Jesus gives you a new one. He gives you, we have been circumcised Christ, with, the, with the circumcision of Christ. Not with hands, not with not eating, don't touch and don't do this. No, 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 no. We have been given a new heart. I mean, isn't this what the new covenant promised? We read it last week, Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Sounds like God's going to do a whole lot of stuff there. Ezekiel 36. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You need a new heart. Well, I can't do that. I know it's impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. Welcome to redemption, brothers and sisters. This is life in Christ. We have been given a new heart. You don't need to make up any rules. The Lord's given you a new heart and then he's told us what we should do. And that begins with remembering you have died. You have died to what the world says you've got to do. You've died to the penalty of the law. You have died. You were cursed under the law because none of us are sinners. And with Christ, that, we, we read it today in Romans 6 and 7. Right? If the, the married woman, well, if, she's, if her husband dies, then she's no longer bound and she can marry another person. Right? Another, another husband. She can find another husband. Well, we had no choice. We had no choice but to be damned. We couldn't do anything about the fact that we were born into sin and the law damns us. That's just our flight. That's just the way it is. But then, we died with Christ. The law's curse has been destroyed because it's been satisfied in Christ. We no longer are under that penalty. And we're also not... Uh, under the slavery of sin and death. Our old heart slaves to sin. Our new heart proclivities towards love for God. We could never love God, but He's given us a heart that does love Him. Life in Christ is freedom. And that freedom begins with remembering that we have died. Now, of course, we still have a sinful flesh. 
That will be destroyed, though. Take heart. That will be destroyed. But the Lord does not look at you according to your sin. He looks at you according to Christ's righteousness. To Christ's sinlessness. So that's kind of our text today. I think I'll just finish that uh, that way. That's our text. Is, is, you know, look, this is the world's religion. But we're not going to mess with any of that. We're going to hold fast to Christ because that's the only place that growth comes from. And remember, you have died to all of that. So now let's begin reflecting a little bit. Let's begin reflecting a little bit. And I have three kind of big headings. The first one is, is, is let's, let's consider how are we grown by holding fast to Christ? How are we grown by holding fast to Christ? And that's where we're going to talk about the local church and the ordinary means. And then the next part, I want us to just, I want to give some pastoral observations for us to reflect on. And then I have a, a, a final closing uh, remark. So beginning with the first one. How are we grown holding fast to the head? Coming from verse 19. Well, let me say this. Christian growth is corporate in nature. It's corporate in nature. We are nourished and we are knit together. By yourself, you're not knit together. But together, we are knit together. And so, Colossians 2 told us that that's exactly what happens. We're nourished and knit together and we're grown with a growth that comes from God. So here's the first thing I want us to consider as we seek to understand how Christian growth is corporate in nature. Number one, God saves us through Christ. We've considered that today. But then he puts his spirit inside of us. He saves us and then he puts his spirit inside of us. Now what's, what's the, the point of that? Well, he sealed us like we talked about. Uh, on the, uh, he sealed us with his spirit for the day of redemption. Right? So we're sealed with His Spirit. And then He's working in us by the Spirit. As we work out our salvation, He is working in us to both will and to work His good pleasure now that we have a new heart and we have His Spirit in us. Philippians 2. But then, remembering that we've begun by the Spirit, we don't end by the law, we end by the Spirit. He's the author and the finisher of faith, Christ is, Hebrews 12. And Romans 8, entirely about our life in Christ. Read that later on, you'll be edified after we consider this reflection. Flipping over to Ephesians 2, you don't have to flip there, just listen. This is Ephesians 2, 22. In Him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now we've been saved, He's put His Spirit inside of us, He's working in us to will and to want his good pleasure and now it's in Christ Jesus that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God and who's doing that building by the Spirit. Okay? So we understand that. God saved us through Christ and he put his Spirit inside of us and we're being built together into a dwelling place. Well then we must understand that it's, it's now that in Christ we're being built together by the Spirit. That is the second point of this. Sorry. Uh, is to understand that the church is not private. In all of what we just said, am I personally saved? Yes. Am I personally indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Yes. Is He personally working in me to will and to work His good pleasure? Yes. So that we would be built together into a dwelling place for God. The church is not private. Ephesians 3, this is 18 and 20. 
May, this is in his prayer, may he strengthen, uh, may, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we, that prayer that we, that, that we would be strengthened in our inner man to comprehend the love of Christ to us so that we would be filled with the fullness of God because he is working in the church to reveal his glory to the whole entire earth. Okay? So because the Spirit of Christ is working sanctification in us, let me just pull from Peter. Peter also says that it's through the enduring Word of Christ that we're growing up into salvation, being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Track with me for, for just, a, just another minute here. This is Ephesians 4. It starts off by saying, because of, you know, because of the gospel and what Christ is and who you are in him, he says, I tell you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Everything he labels is how we are to be to one another. With humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And he goes on uh, to say a few more things. And he talks about how the, God has gifted the church with gifts from the Holy Spirit. Those gifts, let's just fast forward, being pastors and teachers, being elders. And what are they to do? They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Well, what's the work of ministry? Well, it's some of these things, the humility and the gentleness and the patience and the bearing with one another. What is all that for? So that we would uh, attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro by the world that we wouldn't be syncretist and be disqualified and, and, and be judged uh, outside of the faith because we're, we're including so many other things or we're adding to Christ. But rather, us speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly. Work of the ministry there, what we are doing together, how we are loving one another, serving one another, protecting one another. When we do that, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is pretty cool. And so we get to our, we're holding fast to Christ and then we are being built up so it starts off with what God has done in us and what He is doing in us. And now, where does that primarily take place? Right here. Under the Word and the sacrament. In the ordinary means of grace where the Lord Jesus sustains our faith, encourages us, strengthens us so that we might leave this day and serve one another. The body of Christ doesn't stop when we leave here. This is the beginning this is a little piece of heaven. This is us in unity right now under the Lordship of Jesus, clinging to Him alone, saying He's enough. Saying, I have new life in Him. And we leave here and it's like, now what will I do? What will I do? Because this is, this is the place where God serves us. His means. This is the way God serves us the Lord's day. 
and with what he gives us, it is enough for us to serve one another, to live for one another. Here, God says, you do nothing. I did it all. Receive it. When we leave here, we give it all to each other. Everything we have. We're not doing anything to earn righteousness from God anymore. He is here on the Lord's day telling us that Christ is enough. So, I hope that, that that was helpful and encouraging for us to just consider how we're being built together. How we grow is by showing up here clinging to one another. But, but it's then when we work properly. Like, we're here to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is that work of ministry? Right? So, in, in, in light of that, I just want to move on to our second heading here to uh, just some pastoral observations for us to reflect on. And I want to ask us this question. Has our individualistic culture seeped into the fabric in the way that we think about Christian growth and our calling in the church? Here, I mean, they're being tempted with syncretism. Like it's the, it's the self-made religion of the world and they added Christianity to it and it's tempting the church. And they're being tempted to say, well, that seems pretty grandiose or... That they seem pretty satisfied. It's tempting, right? Well, is there any ways that our culture might have seeped in? And I use the word individualistic culture because we're naturally selfish. Justin talked about identity when we right before the, the, the reading. Our, our, our culture is obsessed with identity. As long as everything pleases self and no one else can say anything about it because it makes me happy. Question, just I want to help us to kind of consider, has, has this kind of seeped in? So number one, I want to, I want to ask is this way. In, in thinking of that and in, in me thinking of us and meditating and reflecting, do we find ourselves going outside of the scriptures into self-made religion when we don't think about the Lord's Day gathering as we just did? When we don't think about Christian growth as we just did? If we kind of semi-regularly, this isn't, this isn't us, maybe not many of us, but if we semi-regularly attend the Lord's Day gathering, what are we saying about Christian growth? Who are we relying on to grow us? If we're, if we're going to semi-regularly, you know, prioritize the Lord's Day gathering. Or how about we show up here, but man, we went hard all weekend, just busy, 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 and dead tired, showed about crawling in the stairs. Zero energy to really engage. What were we thinking about Friday and Saturday night in light of the fact that the Lord is going is to give us what we need here today? But we show up half dead. But it's like, well, I'm going to listen to the sermon on Monday and uh, I am like keeping track with my Bible reading. I'm reading this cool book by Michael Horton. And so that really should sustain me. And again, the Lord's trying to serve you today so that you don't have to spend the week trying to serve yourself. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? You miss what the Lord is doing here and you're going to spend all week trying to do something for you instead of using what the Lord has given you today, which is everything. Christ is all. Being nourished and ready to live for one another. Are we trusting what God has said about growth 
and how he begins here. And I think all of us, I mean, I was encouraged when I was thinking this, but I think all of us, we, we all want to believe God's word when he says he uses this gathering. He, it, it, this is the way that he grows us. So moving on to another thing. Just quickly here. I want to bring up the words thoughtfulness or just thoughtlessness. Because our culture is definitely one of just selfishness. It's just perpetually and habitually thinking about what pleases me. How can I kind of numb whatever is just my anxieties. How can I numb the things that I'm struggling with. Just perpetually just, just kind of bombarding ourselves with entertainment. So that we can kind of numb out whatever is just not feeling good to us. But are, are we being thoughtless, like I, I guess I kind of buried the lead there, thoughtless when we think about the ordinary means of grace and what the Lord does here? So how would thinking about what we've learned today change the way I prioritize my family schedule? So that I set my kids up for, for success on the Lord's day. So that I'm rested for the Lord's day. Ready to engage. Ready to receive. Now, of course, dude, we live in a fallen world. We're all racked by sin. We could do the best. We could, we could set ourselves up for the, for the best success and come in here and still be like, gosh, like I know something good is happening on the pulpit and I know the Lord is working and the songs are good, but I'm just like, Lord, help me. Of course that's going to happen. That's no excuse to waste our weekends and uh, not thinking and not preparing and not prioritizing this day. It's no excuse for that, right? Again, this is not legalism, saints. This is freedom. Because of what we learned today, how can we approach this day differently? How can we more thoughtfully engage with uh, our conversations when we show up here? How can we more thoughtfully engage uh, during the week in planning regular coffees or regular conversations or different things, you know, different little habits? Me, Blake, and another brother met up one time, and then we began to just kind of text each other at that same time, just to, just to check in. It just, it just, it, no one planned that. It just became that. And now it's kind of a sweet little, "Hey, what you doing?" I mean, th these are the kind of things where we're we're kind of checking in on each other. And I'm thinking all week, like, how can we love one another? How can we thoughtfully protect and encourage and stay connected during the week? So that we show up here and we have this like basic conversation and then we kind of go home and really the next time you have a, have a deep conversation of, of maybe assessing your own heart, it's like once every three weeks or I mean once every three months when you actually slow down enough. So, so I think what I'm saying here is how can we be more thoughtful with our time, with our conversations, with the way that we live? Like just kind of think like, man, what is the aim? Like, like if, if I'm looking at the road I'm on, like who, who am I considering with my life? That kind of stuff. And guess, and, and saints, none of that is your righteousness. None of that's your righteousness. This is your freedom. You're dead to the world. You are free to give your life to the saints. Because you have to do nothing for God to earn righteousness. So let's just kind of end our time here thinking about that. Let us stay away from making implications of the gospel the standard for righteousness. This freedom is that freedom. 
The gospel is what Jesus has done. We want to live wisely, which is what I've tried to just help us think like, okay, what ways are we might be syncretizing this individualistic culture and the way we think and live, especially on the Lord's Day and then also with our lives. But look, we want to live wisely. We want to proactively avoid sin. We want to be able to come to different conclusions about what's wise and yet still have unity in the faith. We can come to different conclusions about what's wise, about what we do or don't do in the common kingdom and have conversations about that and come to different conclusions. And still, our unity is only in Christ. But while we actively pursue those things that we kind of discuss here, we got to remember that our righteousness is not rooted in our fruit bearing. We can be tempted to make our righteousness dependent upon Christ plus those things even that we just talked about. We, we are tempted to think, well, if I do those things, then I'm going to feel better. No, 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 no. That's your freedom. Enjoy doing that. Christ is our only righteousness. It's only found in the perfection of Christ. And so... We don't need to look to anything that we've done to assure ourselves before God. Instead, we only receive what Christ has done for us, and we receive that here through the word and the sacrament by faith. We don't look to what we have made of ourselves before the Father, but we look to what Christ has made of us to the Father. God is the one who has called us, after all, to belong to Jesus. Romans 1. And as we have thought about the church, let's close with this final thought. I want you to be encouraged that the entire Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is involved in your salvation, is involved in sustaining you, is involved in growing us, in nourishing us. So let's rest on that as we trust only in Christ and as we seek to think thoughtfully about how we live in light of the freedom that is ours. Maybe last thing I'll say is remembering that that freedom begins in remembering that we have died. We have died. We're not under a curse and we're not under the slavery to the world. So let's pray together.